Welcome to the Lead On Podcast. This is Jeff Orge, the president of Gateway Seminary, talking with you once again about practical issues related to ministry leadership. A few weeks ago, I spoke a message in chapel at the President's Convocation about the importance of uh, evangelism and baptism and how significant it is that Southern Baptists address our declines in these areas. I won't re-preach that today, but I would reference it uh, as a podcast from a couple of weeks ago and encourage you to go back and listen to that entire message. Now, as part of that message, I pointed out the the glaring problem that's happening in our convention, especially in the last 20 years or so. Uh, Since 2000, baptismal rates among Southern Baptists have been plummeting. In fact, uh, last year we baptized about the same number of people as we baptized in the mid-1940s. Now, that's particularly shocking when you consider the fact that we have almost twice as, or about twice as many churches today as we had in the 1940s. So twice as many churches are baptizing about the same number of people, which of course illustrates just how uh, diminished our effectiveness really is. Uh, Other statistics indicate that about 30% of churches don't baptize anyone each year, and about 50% of our churches baptize two people or fewer each year, which leads us to understand that we're depending on a small number of really healthy churches reaching large numbers of people to, uh, to baptize most of the converts that are coming to Christ through our churches. Well, in that larger message... Um, I communicated 10 factors which are contributing to the decline of our effectiveness in sharing the gospel and leading people to profess faith in Christ through baptism. Now, these aren't all the only 10 factors. I'm sure you could come up with some additional ones. But in my uh, message, I outlined 10 factors, and I want to talk about those factors now in the podcast. I started last week. I'll continue on for a few more weeks talking about these 10 factors and maybe expounding on them a little more and helping us to understand how we can address them and and help them to be in greater balance and not be uh, diminishing have a diminishing impact on our evangelism effectiveness. Now, when I say bring them into balance, this is one of the things I also pointed out in the message, and that is these 10 factors that are diminishing our evangelistic capacities are all rooted in good things that we should be doing. And so it's not a matter of forsaking or giving up any of these 10 issues. It's a matter of bringing them into better balance, of sliding the scale on the continuum back toward the center, if you will. Uh, These 10 issues are issues that do have some importance for us and when understood properly and in context can be very significant for us. But at the same time, we have to be careful that we don't let them get out of balance and in doing so diminish our effectiveness in sharing the gospel, leading people to faith in Jesus, and then leading them to publicly profess faith in the Lord through baptism. So the second factor that I identified in the convocation address that's undermining our effectiveness in evangelism is preoccupation with theological debate. Here's what I said in the message. Another issue related to the teaching ministry of the church is our current preoccupation with theological debate about the gospel. We are spending countless hours reading books, going to conferences, reading and writing blogs, gathering in coffee shops, and otherwise discussing gospel gospel minutiae and nuances. Yes, sound theology matters. But beyond striving for sound theology, we are determined to argue, debate, confront, criticize, and separate from believers who, while they agree with the broad-stroke fundamentals of our position, do not agree with the fine-point brushwork we use to finish the painting. 
we mistakenly think our primary mission is defining and defending the gospel. That apologetic task is important when directed toward the proper audience. We must define and defend the gospel against heretics who deny it, not against fellow believers who understand some aspect of it differently than us. We should debate the fine brushwork of theology in doctoral classrooms and academic colloquia, but not allow those discussions to thwart missional unity around doctrinal essentials. Apologetics supports evangelism, no doubt. But our message must be more about declaring the gospel than defending it. Despite our differences, most Southern Baptists believe enough gospel orthodoxy to be saved and tell another person how to be saved. What we believe in common is sufficient for the salvation of unbelievers. Genuine Christianity is establishing a relationship with God, not believing facts about Him. Christianity is about establishing a relationship, not adopting religious theories. This is not a new challenge. Charles Spurgeon, in an 1886 sermon entitled Christ and His Co-Workers, said, Suppose a number of persons were to take it into their heads that they had to defend a lion, a full-grown king of beasts. There he is in the cage, and here come all the soldiers of the army to fight for him. Well, I should suggest that they should kindly stand back and open the door and let the lion out. I believe that would be the best way of defending him, for he would take care of himself. And the best apology for the gospel is to let the gospel out. In the message, I tried to say that sound theology really does matter. I am certainly not advocating that we weaken our theological positions in any way and think that that would somehow make us better at evangelism. That's not my point at all. I'm simply suggesting that we are spending far too much time on all these different activities where we are debating the gospel incessantly among ourselves rather than sharing the gospel boldly and consistently with people who've never heard it. That's the key point I'm trying to make. Listen, there is a place for apologetics. First of all, we need to stand up for the gospel in our culture. The, gospel, the culture is no longer neutral toward the gospel. It's antagonistic toward the gospel. Now, we have to stand up for the gospel in our culture just to keep it from being, in a sense, overwhelmed and trampled by the opposition that's coming against it. We also have to stand up for the gospel among liberal Christians. There is a need to say, uh, to speak the gospel and to continue to speak the gospel, even among people who claim to be Christians, but have a view of the gospel that is so skewed or so different that we really can't uh, claim that it really is the true gospel. So I am totally for apologetics. I think that apologetics and apologists definitely have their place. We must stand up for the gospel in the culture And we must stand up for the gospel even in the church or the Christian community or the Christian context when we have liberal theologians or uh, liberal Christians who advocate for the gospel using the word but gutting it of its biblical meaning. So there is a place for apologetics. There are certainly specific reasons for apologetics. Um, 
First of all, there's the biblical mandate or the biblical imperative to stand up for the gospel. There are just countless passages in the New Testament that can be cited that talk about the importance of sound doctrine, of teaching sound doctrine, of believing sound doctrine. Uh, there's examples in the New Testament of church leaders in conflict over doctrine and of having major confrontations, including church meetings like the one described in Acts chapter 15 to try to sort out the, the, the truth of the gospel. Look, there's a biblical imperative, a biblical mandate, and there are ample biblical examples of the importance of standing up for the gospel and of apologetics. There's also just the practical need. Um, in every generation, there are errors that arise about the gospel that must be confronted. Uh, and just, it's like, it's like playing theological whack-a-mole, it seems like. As soon as we get one error about the gospel suppressed, another one pops up and it has to be dealt with. And then as soon as we get that one put down, another one pops up and has to be handled. So the, 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 the objections to the gospel are always arising in different ways from different sources and from different people, and they have to be confronted. So there's definitely a place for apologetics. That place is standing up for the gospel in the culture and standing up for the gospel uh, even in the Christian movement when the gospel is redefined in unbiblical ways. There's reasons for apologetics that are both biblical and practical. So I'm not at all speaking against this need. But what I am suggesting is that rather than speaking out against the culture and against liberal Christianity, rather than fulfilling our biblical imperative and meeting the practical need, what we're actually doing is spending a huge amount of time talking to each other about the gospel rather than sharing the gospel with other people. Now, I see so many expressions of this. Of course we do this at a seminary and in a seminary context. That's really part of what seminary is about, is having long, stimulating, energetic, deep, uh, detailed-filled conversations about theology. So it's certainly appropriate to do that, and I'm not saying we shouldn't do that in some places or in some contexts. We certainly do that here at the seminary. But now we've expanded this outside the seminary community to, to, to see our role as talking about this kind of gospel minutia and these kind of gospel nuances um, in coffee shop conversations, in church leadership meetings, and in all kinds of media-driven dialogues. Um, it's not... It's not uncommon for me to have someone stop me in the hall and say, did you see what so-and-so tweeted, or did you see what so-and-so blogged, or did you see what so-and-so said on their podcast, or did you see what so-and-so wrote? And it's always some stirring up thing about the gospel and about some theological debate or argument that they're having one person with another. And frankly, 99% of the time when people ask me if I've seen something like this, I just smile and say, no, I don't keep up with that kind of thing. Now, that surprises people because as a seminary president, aren't I supposed to be just totally and completely immersed in all of this debate and conversation that's always going on among believers about the gospel? And I say the answer to that is no, I'm not. My primary responsibility is to be a model of gospel sharing and of gospel communication and of getting the gospel to people who've not yet heard it. Now, part of my role as a seminary leader is certainly to talk about the gospel in the context where it's appropriate to do that, but that is not the sum focus of my time or my energy. And so when people come up and talk to me about these things, I often have to admit that I'm not keeping up with the latest Twitter battle or the latest 
uh, blog war, or I'm not keeping up with the latest debate going on between the two pastors or two theologians or two people who have taken opposite sides and are stirring up trouble out there and causing people to get excited about their positions rather than talking to lost people about the gospel. We're spending huge amounts of time arguing fine points with each other. Now again, I am not opposed to theological debate. I'm certainly not speaking against apologetics. I'm not saying there's not a time and a place for some of this. But again, I'm trying to get us to move back toward balance. If you are spending more time reading blogs, following Twitter, looking at, or listening to podcasts, and reading books about Christians arguing the gospel with each other, if you're spending more time doing that, then you are spending time telling the gospel to unbelievers in your community, I want to push you back toward balance. Push you back toward balance. You know, we're a mission-driven people. Christians seem to be hardwired to be on mission. We know that God has saved us and saved us for a purpose, and that purpose is to do something for him. The problem is we can easily get sidetracked on what our mission really is. Our mission is not defending the gospel. Our mission is declaring the gospel. Now, in the context of that declaration, there's some defending that must be done. Absolutely, yes. But if the sum total of our mission is defending the gospel, we're out of balance. We need to come back to the place where we're first declaring the gospel and defending it as needed along the way, not defending the gospel and declaring it occasionally only when we're forced to or when we feel guilty and and think that's what we have to do uh, in the moment. Christians know we're supposed to be on mission. We, we're going to find something to devote ourselves to as our mission. I'm advocating that we devote ourselves to the mission of sharing the gospel. When we make defending the gospel our mission, it forces us to form tribes around gospel theories. Now, what do tribes do? Well, tribes are groups of people who provide safety, who help us attack others, and give us identity. Think about it. Tribes are groups of people who provide safety, help us attack others, and give us identity. If you find yourself needing a theological tribe so that you feel protected, have some allies in attacking others, and gain an identity, my friend, listen, I think you've lost perspective on what it means to enter into theological debate not for the purpose of creating tribes around gospel theories, but for the purpose of establishing the gospel so that you can declare it more effectively in the lives of other people. So, having said all that, what are some solutions that will help us to push back toward balance where we're declaring the gospel as our priority and defending the gospel as needed rather rather than defending the gospel as our mission and declaring the gospel only when forced in the moment. What's the solution to finding greater balance in our preoccupation with theological debate? Well, here's some suggestions. Number one, 
Direct your defense of the gospel against real enemies of the gospel. Secularists who are antagonistic toward the gospel and heretics, meaning Christians who have forsaken the biblical definition or the biblical meaning of the gospel. Those two audiences really do need and deserve a defense of the gospel. Secularists who are antagonistic toward the gospel, heretics, people within our community who are uh, defining the gospel in unbiblical ways and are in that sense undermining its effectiveness. When you come up against a secularist or a heretic, defend the gospel. But be careful that you direct your defense against those real enemies. So many people in our movement who have a different perspective on some aspect of the gospel than we do are not our enemies. They are not secularists attacking the gospel. They are not heretics undermining the gospel. They are biblical believers who see a perspective different than ours And those people do not need a defense of the gospel from us. They believe enough gospel orthodoxy to be our partners. They need to be partners with us in sharing the gospel with other people. You know, I recently went to India with a Beyond Team mission group from Gateway. There were about a dozen students that were on the trip along with some uh, professors and leaders. When we arrived in India we did not have even one meeting to discuss the different perspectives we had on the gospel. We didn't try to decide who was a Calvinist, who wasn't a Calvinist, who was Reformed, who wasn't Reformed. We didn't try to figure out what theory of the doctrine of election we each one subscribed to. We didn't have a seminar on sorting out the role of free will in producing uh, repentance and faith in the life of a person We didn't have any discussions about any of that. We knew that we all shared enough gospel orthodoxy to tell Hindus, many of whom had never heard the name of Jesus, how to be saved. And so we went into the streets sharing the gospel, believing that the gospel was the power of God and the salvation for people who had never heard it before. And we saw dozens of people come to faith in Christ during our days of witnessing, particularly our days of street witnessing in India. Listen, we do need to direct a defense of the gospel against secularists and heretics, but most people are not secularists and heretics. Most people are just lost. They don't need a defense of the gospel. They just need someone to share the gospel with them, to declare the gospel to them, to let them know the good news of Jesus so that they can have the opportunity to believe in him. So the first solution to greater balance about our preoccupation with theological debate is to direct our defense of the gospel against the real enemies of the gospel, secularists and heretics, and not against each other. Second, develop humility about your doctrinal positions. Newsflash, no person listening to this podcast has a perfect understanding of the gospel. Not one. You say, oh, no, no, I've read some serious work on this, and I've identified some theologians who really understand the gospel, and I've adopted their positions as my own. Exactly. And if those theologians that you're following so studiously really believe the theology they espouse, 
they would tell you that they also do not fully understand the gospel. Why? Because the gospel message includes this reality. All of us are broken by sin and have a less than perfect capacity to understand everything. You aren't God. You do not understand every nuance of the gospel perfectly. And no theologian who tells you they do uh, understands the gospel because in telling you they fully understand the gospel, they have, fully, they, they have revealed that they don't because they don't understand the fallenness of, human, of humankind and what sin has done to all of us. Develop some humility about your position. Look, I have convictions about the gospel, deep convictions about the gospel that have come through long years of study and the practice of ministry. But I have some good friends who don't share those convictions, some solid Christian brothers and sisters who don't see it all exactly the way I see it. They may be right. I may be right. But we all have to hold together with enough humility to say that while we are convictional people, we're also people of humility who recognize that we might just be wrong on a few things, and we might need the work of other believers to balance us out and to give us a more complete picture, which leads me to the third solution, and that is learn to live in what I call the tension of orthodoxy. You know, there are paradoxical statements in the Bible that might, that seem contradictory to unbelievers, but to those of us who are believers and submitted ourselves to, the, to God's authority and his revelation of himself and his will and his word, we recognize these paradoxical statements are not contradictory. They are tension-filled statements that in the sense of that tension and in the middle of that tension is where we find orthodoxy. Look, the Bible does say that only the elect will be saved. It also says everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. I do not know how to reconcile that paradox. All I know is that in God's mystery, he has elected a people for himself unto salvation and has invited everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. I do not fully understand how that works. If that discourages you, if you think, but you're a seminary president, you're supposed to know these things, man, I would just simply say, don't hold anyone in that high of esteem. I do not have all the answers, but I've learned that in the tension of orthodoxy, I can, or that I can find peace and satisfaction and a sense of obedience to God. You know, this tension of orthodoxy and the previous statement that I made about having humility about your positions was illustrated by a couple of men in uh, church history, uh, George Whitfield and John Wesley. These men did not have, uh, uh, did not agree theologically. And at various times in their lives, they wrote to each other and about each other and said things to each other and about each other that were pretty hard and sometimes cutting and revealed the depth of their convictions and the differences they had with each other. But do you know who preached George Whitfield's memorial service at his request? John Wesley. Wesley preached Whitfield's memorial service. One time Whitfield was asked by a critic uh, of Wesley, do you think you'll see Mr. Wesley in heaven? And he said, no, no, I don't think we will. And the critic smiled, yes, that's what I thought. He said, no, the reason we won't see Wesley in heaven is because he'll be so close to God's throne, the light will blind us. We'll be so far away, we won't even be able to see him. That's how worthy he will be of heaven and how unworthy we will be. Now, that's a paraphrase of his response, but Wes Whitfield was saying to this critic, Wesley and I disagree on some important things, but he's my brother, and he's going to be in heaven with us. 
And in fact, he's going to preach my memorial services. That's the kind of humility and living in the tension of orthodoxy that I advocate. You know, when I get really upset with another Christian brother about some aspect of doctrine or theology, I often remind myself, this is a person that's going to heaven with me. I'm going to be with them for eternity. I need to act like it right now. So to bring some balance to our preoccupation with theological debate, let's defend the gospel against our true enemies, secularists and heretics. Let's have some humility about our positions that we do hold, convictionally, yes, but with humility. Let's learn to live in the tension of orthodoxy and follow the example of men like Whitfield and Wesley who disagreed strongly, but who believed they were going to heaven together and wanted to be with one another even at that crucial moment of a memorial service to show the unity they had and their brotherhood in Jesus Christ. Now, a fourth solution is answer questions about the gospel in proportion to the questions unbelievers are raising about it. You know, for many years I worked as a chaplain with professional athletes, and in my 10 years of working with them, it was astounding. They never once asked so many of the pressing questions that are so uh, popular among Christians who debate the gospel. They never asked me questions that we like to debate. They wanted to talk about practical issues about their lives, about the gospel, and about God, and about how he could make a difference for them. That's what they asked me about. And so gauge your defense of the gospel to the real questions unbelievers are asking about the gospel. And you'll find that you'll spend a lot less time defending the gospel and talking about its minutia and nuances and more time sharing the big picture of the gospel message and what it can mean in the lives of people. And then number five, make sure you're sharing the gospel with unbelievers more than you're discussing it with Christian friends. Now, I don't mean preaching and teaching on the gospel. That's part of our responsibility. But I mean when you have downtime. Do you like to spend your hours whiling away your time following Twitter wars about the gospel, or do you like to go out to the mall and talk to lost people about Jesus? I'm just saying spend as much time or more talking to unbelievers about the gospel than you are discussing the gospel with Christian friends, and that will bring balance back to this issue of theological debate. And then finally, share the gospel and watch it change lives. Nothing will bring you back to balance quicker than seeing someone saved right in front of your eyes. A couple of weeks ago, uh, I had the opportunity to be in a city back toward the east, and one of the ball players that I led to faith in Jesus a few years ago lives there now. This was one of the players that I had a really profound and deep relationship with that transcended our time in the, in the clubhouse or tran- in the game. And so I, I texted him and said, hey, I'm going to be in your city. If you've got 20 minutes, I'd love to come by and just see you and see your family and just you know encourage you a bit. He texts back and said, uh, well, my wife's out of town, but if you can uh, put up with a three- and a five-year-old uh, and, and me playing Mr. Uh, Mom for the weekend, I'd love for you to come by. And then he said, but don't come until after 1145 on Sunday because we won't be home from church until then. Man, that meant my heart sing. Here's a dad home with his boys on the weekend, wife out of town. And he said, nothing gets in the way of church now. You can definitely come over, but you know, but you got to come after church. And that remind that just showed me that, you know, here he was these years later, still following the Lord, growing, learning, trying to disciple his boys and help them to learn to be Christians as they mature. So I went out to his house and we just talked about, you know, how much he's grown and developed in his family and his faith and his life now after baseball. And it was so encouraging to me. And I thought about where he was. I thought about where he was 
when I was sharing the gospel with him, and he wasn't yet a Christian. And he wasn't asking me all kinds of ridiculous questions about gospel minutiae or about debates that go on among Christians about the gospel. He was asking me, how does this help me to put my life back together and have a decent marriage? And how does this, how's the gospel help me to resolve the guilt and the, 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 the evil that's in my life? And, and I shared the gospel with him, and he prayed and received Jesus Christ. And that day, his life was transformed right in front of my eyes. And then these years later, I go and I see the fruit of that and the discipleship that's taken place over the years. It moves me to, to tears even as I'm talking to you about it right now because when you share the gospel with people, you see the power of God transforming someone right in front of you. You realize the power of the gospel is demonstrated not when we sit in coffee clatches and debate nuances. The power of the gospel is demonstrated when we tell a lost man that there's hope in Jesus Christ. And we see the transformative power of the gospel change a life. That's what makes gospel talk meaningful. And that's what I want to be known for. So I'm challenging you today. Defend the gospel against heretics and secularists. Debate the gospel in appropriate context where it needs to be debated. Talk about the gospel as you need to in your Christian circles. But never let that replace, eclipse, distract you from sharing the gospel with unbelievers. Because when you do that, you will see the power of God demonstrated in your life. I encourage you to do it as you lead on.